you're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. This afternoon, uh, I was watching my uh, favorite NFL play some, my favorite NFL team play some football, the Green Bay Packers, which I hope is not a super divisive statement if you're angry at that. I already have a head start because we're socially distanced in here. I can get away quickly if you're angry. But I was watching the game, and I realized it was going to overlap with service tonight. And I was like, man, I, I need to like, give the best energy that I can towards the game. So I, I asked Emily, my wife, well, hey, can I just wear a Packers jersey to service tonight? And you can see who won that conversation uh, between us. But I am wearing green, so there's still some energy there. Um, no, I'm so glad to be with you guys. This is sweet. I'm glad that uh, I get to join you. This is so much more life-giving. Uh, it's so much more joy than a football game can provide. So, What if I told you that Thanksgiving is the most ironic holiday we've ever come up with in American history? That might also be a divisive statement in this room, similar to liking the Green Bay Packers. But before you get offended, just think about it for a sec. We all decide collectively to set aside a, a day, right, to be thankful for all of the things that we have, to gather around a table and we'll practice gratitude for all of the things in our lives. And then the next day, we get up early and we show up at stores and shopping centers to get all of the things that we don't currently have to obtain more stuff. Every Thanksgiving and Good Friday, we're reminded, though we might be thankful for what we already have, there's always just a little bit more we could obtain. No matter how much we get in this world, there's always a little bit more we want. And I don't want to put a damper on Thanksgiving. It's important to be thankful. It's important to be grateful. Uh, Do that this week. But I think this week should also serve as a reminder that our worldly things can't last. They can't sustain us in the way that we desire to be sustained. The meal we share on Thursday fills us up, but we're going to be hungry again on Friday. And today, we're going to focus on a meal that can last, that lasts well beyond Thursday and Friday, that has lasted for millennia and will last through eternity. And this is a meal that Jesus institutes, that he graciously gives us, that we as Christians call communion. Turn with me in a Bible, if you would, to Matthew, book of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, for those of you flipping through your Bibles. We're going to be in chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26. I'll be reading from verses 20 through 29. I believe we have it up on the screen as well, if you need. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began saying to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. And Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And he replied, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think it's important uh, here to take a quick step back and remember where we are in this story, because we're jumping right into the middle of the action. There's so much going on here. Uh, So for those of us that are familiar, I think it's helpful, and those of us that maybe aren't as familiar with the story, hopefully this is a a good kind of clue at some of the dynamics that are happening here. Uh, Jesus, the focus of Scripture, kind of the central character of this massive narrative that we have in our Bible, he's sharing a meal with some of his closest friends uh, called his disciples. That's who the text refers to as the Twelve here. Uh, They've just recently gotten to the city of Jerusalem, and they're celebrating, well, not just any meal, a famous meal, a meal that was practiced every year by the nation of Israel. It's called the Passover meal, or Passover Seder. And this is the Jewish celebration of God's freeing of the nation from their chains in bondage to Egypt. We actually have that story in our Bibles. You can go and read it. We have uh, the Hebrew scriptures as part of our Bible. And the book of Exodus talks about how Israel was enslaved and harshly treated by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so they cried out to God, and scripture says God hears them. So we learn something about God from this narrative. He's someone who hears the cries of the oppressed, and then he moves on their behalf. He brings justice for the oppressed. And so through a variety of signs that are initiated by a leader that he raises up named Moses, right? This may sound familiar. Prince of Egypt, anybody? Right? Animated movie that described this. Through Moses, God brings signs that eventually force the Egyptians' hands. Pharaoh is forced to recognize that he is not the one who defines good, that he is not the one who is in control of his empire, that God ultimately can bring swift destruction if he so pleases. And after the death of his son, Pharaoh finally says, go. We won't hold you any longer. And the people of Israel are freed. Justice has been brought by this just God. And so at every Passover feast, the nation of Israel eats and drinks specific items to remember who God is and what he's done. So some of those items are wine and bread. Sometimes they're a little bit different. Uh, They dip the bread in certain drinks so that it tastes a certain way. That's kind of the goal. It's supposed to be this deeply symbolic meal about who God is and what he does. And then the pinnacle of the meal is a lamb that gets cooked. And this lamb serves as a, a symbol for the sacrifice of the sins of that household and how God has overlooked their sins. He has passed over their sins. And so when Jesus is eating this meal with his disciples and he institutes a new meal, right, communion, he's playing on this Passover symbolism. He's playing on these things that are going on here. He's telling us who God is and what God does in this meal. And there's three things, I think, that Jesus mainly says in this passage. Uh, These are the three W's of who God is and what God does. Uh, The first W is that God welcomes us. That is, that he welcomes us sinners, those of us who are broken, in the midst of our brokenness to come to him. The second thing that he does is he wins. That when we come to God, he actually wins over our brokenness, and he brings new life in the middle of it. And then finally, the third W is God warrants. That God's welcoming and winning actually warrants gratefulness. It warrants thanksgiving. It warrants a response in us to receive what he's done. 
So let's look at the first point about who God is and what God does. He welcomes us in our brokenness. In verse 21, you may have noticed, Jesus calls out his disciples. He says, surely one of you is going to betray me. Buzzkill, right? Like they're eating a meal together, his closest friends, and he says, oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. In this time when you ate a meal, you would, you would lean down. The tables were on the ground, and so they'd be on pillows, and you can imagine one of them just kind of slipping or spitting out their drink, right? What? We're your closest friends, right? This is shocking, what he says, but we know, the people who know this story or who are familiar with it, we know who betrays him. That's Judas, right? If you don't know that, spoiler alert, Judas betrays Jesus. Uh, if I don't feel bad for spoiling it. It's been 2,000 years that the story's existed, so it's kind of on you for not knowing it at this point, right? Uh, no, all joking aside, Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. We know that, but he doesn't call out Judas directly here. He knows Judas is going to betray him, but he doesn't call him out explicitly. He says, surely one of you will betray me. And so his words are doing something crucial for every person in that room, not just for Judas, he is encountering all of the disciples there intimately enough to draw them inward, to question their motives, to consider where their hearts are and how they're viewing Jesus. That causes each of them to question Jesus, right? He says, surely not I, Lord. I, I won't be the one to do this, right? And that statement implies that they're actually considering Jesus' word as potentially true. They're saying that this could be true of them, that Jesus calling out his disciples and saying, one of you is going to betray me. Well, it might be true of me. Every disciple is evaluating their own hearts here. They're willing to consider that they might just be broken enough, that they might just be flawed enough to actually reject him. And then they also accompany this question with an action. They move towards Jesus one by one. They don't stand far off and question their motives on their own and sit in this cycle of internal angst, right? They move to Jesus with that angst. And so we're learning something about who this Christ truly is here. He's not a God whose judgment exceeds his mercy. This isn't a God who demands perfection in order to approach him. This is a God who we can approach in the midst of our brokenness. And so for each of us in this room and watching online, this should serve as a reminder to us that feeling the weight of your sin is not necessarily a bad thing. But where you go with that weight is critical. Think about it for yourself for a moment. When you recognize your lust, do you kind of try to bury it or forget it in your life? When you grasp the depth of your pride, right, do you self-correct? Do you try to willpower yourself to do better next time? When you realize the pervasiveness of your anger, do you direct that anger back on yourself, right? Negative self-talk, just talking about how much of an idiot you are and that uh, you've got to be better than this. When you're in the midst of existential doubt and dread, do you flee into the reaches of your own head in despair? Do you see the central problem with all of those responses? They're all rooted in self-effort, which will ultimately always lead us to the same problem. It was us who created the problem, so going deeper into ourselves only exacerbates them. It's like trying to pull yourself out of quicksand. Friends, Jesus only convicts us of our brokenness so that we run swiftly and earnestly to him because he can heal us. 
there's a 16th century theologian. His name is Thomas Watson. He puts it simply and beautifully. He says, our sins should humble us, but they must not discourage us from coming to Christ. So if you feel shame in your life about the things that you've done, about the ways that you behaved, and that shame causes you to bury or attempt to forget or abuse yourself, that's not of Jesus. Healthy conviction of the darkness in our lives will never lead us into further darkness. It will instead spur us onward towards the light of the world in Jesus. And if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, if you're watching and maybe you're trying to figure it out, you were raised Christian as a child and now you're trying to see what it looks like to actually live and follow Christ, and you've been stuck in this constant cycle of self-effort to find the life that you want, to grasp the life that you've been longing for, Jesus frees you from that effort. He welcomes you to him. And this centrality of Jesus continues when he actually institutes the communion here. Jesus reiterates there that it's not about the disciples' effort, that this meal itself is not about the disciples' effort. He doesn't say, after they're convicted of their potential rejection, he doesn't say, all right, so now that you know you're messed up, do this and this and this and this, and then we'll be good, right? We'll be straight. We're set. He doesn't give them a long grocery list to accomplish. He doesn't give them this list of of piety that they need to fulfill. He instead only commands them to receive what he is giving them. He tells them three things in this passage. Take, eat, and drink. All of those imply a reception of what Jesus is giving them in this meal. Frederick Dale Bruner, a a biblical scholar and commentator on Matthew, puts it this way. He says, The divine work must not be subtly eclipsed by human works. It's not unimportant that right here in the Lord's Supper's paragraph, the disciples are nowhere commanded to do anything for God at all, except to receive what Jesus gives them. The only commands are take, eat, drink. All commands to let the Lord be the giver in this supper. And so we learn here that communion and taking in communion, it's not just a religious act that you do in order to obtain some sort of status before God. It's a reception of what Jesus has already done for you. And this points us to a central truth of Christianity, which separates it from every other philosophy and ideology and religion that's existed throughout human history. We aren't Christian because we've been deemed fit by God due to our unfailing devotion. That's not what it means to be Christian. We're not Christian because of how perfectly we live our lives. To be Christian is to admit quite the opposite, that we are deeply flawed people who often betray the way of Jesus even under the slightest pressure. That's true of you. That's true of you. That's true of you, and that's true of me. Our worthiness to approach Christ comes at the moment that we acknowledge our utter unworthiness. That acknowledgement is the first step to following Jesus. To admit that we don't have the ability to attain the life that we're made for and to submit ourselves to Jesus and call him Lord, that's what it means to be Christian. And notice that's what distinguishes 11 of the disciples from the one that betrays him in Judas, right? Did you notice Judas doesn't call Jesus Lord here? He calls him Rabbi. Nowhere in the gospel narratives do you find Judas calling Jesus Lord. He calls him rabbi, which means teacher. He's essentially saying, I like some of the moral things that Jesus talks about. I think he says some good things, right? 
but he's not willing to submit himself to Jesus. He's not willing to give his life over to him. That's what it means to be Christian. If you are broken, come to Jesus. He welcomes you in this meal. So that's the first point. God is welcoming to us in the midst of our brokenness. The second point is that God wins over and against that brokenness and that he actually brings new life in the middle of it. Now remember back to the purpose of this Passover meal that they're sharing. They'd eat a lamb every year to signify God's deliverance of the people from bondage. And Jesus is now saying in this passage that he is the lamb, that he is going to be broken in order to deliver everyone from their bondage to their brokenness. Your sins are forgiven. Your darkness no longer has a hold on you. And so we learn here that not only are you welcome to God in the midst of your brokenness, well, when you come to him, he actually heals you. Just as the Israelite people had their chains broken and were freed from their oppressors, so you can be freed from the chains that oppress you. Maybe your chains are anger, especially in a season like this, right? Anger at your political ideologies or the opposite of your political ideologies. Anger at your relationships. Anger at your noisy neighbors. Jesus breaks those chains and invites you to a life of serenity. Maybe your chains are lust, right? You practice intimacy with a screen, looking for pleasure on your terms. Jesus breaks those chains and invites you to a life of true intimacy and love. Maybe your chains are anxiety and worry. You're paralyzed by life and how the things in your life might go wrong. Jesus breaks those chains and brings you peace. And communion is an eternal reminder that in coming to Christ in the midst of our inadequacy, we actually find ourselves restored in him. We're no longer defined by the sin that corrupts our lives. We're defined by the goodness of Jesus. And Jesus talks about this change that happens when we come to him. He calls it a new covenant here. And that's uh, basically hearkening back to language that a prophet who wrote hundreds of years before Jesus was alive predicted that God would do. That prophet's name was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah talked about how God would write his law on our hearts, that he would change something in the very core of our beings. Jesus is saying that he is doing that for us when we come to him. While our hearts were consumed with selfishness and decay, constantly constructing our own demise, they're now broken open to a selfless, loving, and gracious new life in Jesus. Jesus doesn't just give us a new morality. He's not just another teacher. He doesn't just give us a new law to abide by. He gives us free and full new hearts that transform ourselves and the world around us. See, that new heart that we're given, it doesn't just stay in our personal, individual little bubbles. That's not how the Christian life works. It's not about getting yourself saved. Notice in verse 29 here, Jesus points to a future day when there's going to be a massive communion table where people who we don't know will join us to celebrate the restoration that God has brung in their lives and in the world. Tears will be wiped from eyes. Tribes and nations from all around the world will come because this restoration has happened in Christ. And so this communion is not only a taste of what God has done for us, it's a taste of what God is going to do at the end of time. He's going to restore all things. And so when we acknowledge Jesus here as Lord in our lives, and when we eat this bread and, and drink this juice, this new heart 
that Jesus is talking about, it starts to work in us. And often it happens slowly, right? If we've been doing this Christian life for any amount of time, we know it happens slowly. If we read the disciples' lives, we know it happens slowly. We steadily give over every part of our lives to Jesus to transform. And once we do that, we find ourselves thrown back into a world full of people who need that transformation as much as we do. And so we partner with God in that transformation. So we adopt the orphan. We advocate for the refugee. We show hospitality. We mourn with those who mourn. We care for the widow. We feed the hungry. We clothe the naked. We fight to end injustice at every level of our society. We wage war on darkness because we become infused with light. We recognize that this meal isn't just for our benefit. We partner with the light for the restoration of all things. So the second point here is that God wins over the brokenness that we bring to him, and he brings new life. Finally, the third thing that God does here, he warrants thanksgiving. He warrants gratitude. Historically, in more liturgical churches, this meal is called different things. Uh, Sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper, sometimes communion. Uh, In more liturgical churches, it's called the Eucharist. And the Eucharist harkens back to the Greek language that's used here to describe this meal, eucharisteo. And eucharisteo literally means thankfulness, thanksgiving. The Greek root word at the center of eucharisteo is charis, which means grace. Consuming communion is literally an acknowledgement of our brokenness and a grateful receiving of what Christ has done. It's receiving eternal freedom that gives us real, lasting satisfaction. This is a thanksgiving meal at its heart. And it serves as the ultimate cure for our Thanksgiving and Black Friday irony. See, it's part of our human nature to constantly grasp at worldly things to sustain us, to fulfill us, right? Sometimes that's as simple as turkey, right? We consume as much as we want on Thursday, and then we take a nap, and then we're hungry again on Friday. But sometimes it's deeper than that. Sometimes it's not your stomach. Sometimes it's your soul. Sometimes we long for fulfillment in a relationship, and then that person ends up inevitably hurting us or deserting us. Sometimes we long for fulfillment in our work, but we find that after putting in hours and hours of hard effort, we're not much different than we were to start. Sometimes we long for fulfillment in our possessions, but eventually we find out that even millionaires are depressed. Jesus is offering us a meal here that can sustain us. A meal that affirms our value and gives us ultimate purpose for our lives and for the world around us. In a world full of food that we need to keep refilling on, this is an eternal Thanksgiving feast. There's a story that I want to read to you guys here that I've kind of put together, and my hope is that this washes over you. Uh, So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes as I read. I'll let you know when you can open them. I'm not going to surprise you here. Uh, But let this story wash over you. This describes what Jesus does for us. We've been chained. We've been chained to the ground in a dark, humid cave for the entirety of our lives. The air is thick, a foggy soup enveloping us all. We've only ever faced the back wall of the cave, though that's not for lack of trying. We've pulled harshly at the shackles on our wrists, sometimes till they're bruised and bloodied, yet we've never broken free. 
And every once in a while, we'll see flickers of light upon the wall. And we're tricked into thinking that those might actually give us lasting light in the midst of the darkness, but they quickly fade. And we're left consigned only to our chains and darkness again, perpetually hearing the drip, drop of water somewhere in the cave. And then, suddenly and unexpectedly, a fierce and fiery light emerges onto the cave wall. It wakes us from our wearied sleep and draws us to itself. It expands quickly, a growing glow in front of our tired eyes. And just as the light seems to be consuming the wall, just as it seems too much for us to handle, the source is revealed. From behind our backs, arriving from the opening of the cave, which was inaccessible by us in our chains, comes a man. He stands in front of us, between us and the wall and he radiates like something we've never seen before. It becomes clear that he is the source of light that's been expanding on this wall. He is the one that's pushing away the darkness. And then, after standing in our midst for an eternal moment, he speaks and swiftly breaks the chains that have bound us. He does the thing that we could never do on our own. He frees us. But, perhaps to be expected, some of us had grown accustomed to the dark. Some of us had actually preferred it. We were the ones that controlled things in that scenario, that dictated the terms of our chained existence. And so some of us attempted to crush this man of light, to suffocate him in the midst of the dark cave. And at first, it seemed to work. After being overcome by those who preferred the darkness, the man was silent on the ground of the cave. And yet after a while, he stood again. For no amount of darkness can actually remove real light. And so this man now invites every one of us with chains broken to walk with him out of the cave. The only thing he asks of us is to follow him, to receive his light. And so we go with him, clinging tightly to this eternal light, even stepping on his sandals from time to time. You can open your eyes. This week, many of us have plans for Thanksgiving. It might involve turkey or cranberries or pumpkin pie, maybe some football, maybe some naps. Maybe for you this week is a little more difficult. Maybe it's a reminder of a broken relationship you have or a fractured family that you have to deal with. Wherever you are this week, I encourage you, remember this table. Remember what Christ has done for you, the life that he has freed you into. And if you haven't experienced that new life yet or you're trying to figure out what it means to experience it anew, maybe this Thanksgiving is the time to. Because long before Americans fattened themselves on carbs in the third week of November, there's been a transcendent Thanksgiving going on. A Thanksgiving that doesn't end with a deeply ironic shopping spree on Black Friday, but a Thanksgiving that will last an eternity. A Thanksgiving that we get to consume every week together in this family. So let's remember that meal this week. Let's prioritize the sharing of that meal with a world who desperately needs it. I know it's not the third Thursday of November yet, but in Christ, the day doesn't really matter that much. It's the body and blood that do. Happy Thanksgiving.